0: this is the book riot podcast a weekly news and talk show about what's new cool and worth talking about in the world of books and reading this is episode 138 we are recording on thursday december 24th i'm rebecca shinsky i'm here with jeff o'neill and we're coming to you from bookriot.com
1: Hello. It's a Merry Christmas Eve to you and everyone out there, though you're not going to hear this until after Christmas. But it's Christmas Eve here in Portland and there in Richmond and really everywhere else. Yes. It's not a different day other places just because we're recording right and now. And it
0: is not beginning to look anything like Christmas. No. Because no, no, no. it's been raining forever.
1: <laughs> yeah. So we're this is our year in review show. Mm-hmm. Um and we're going to we're going to give some quote-unquote awards uh and just talk about some of the big stories of the year, and sort of try to try to see what's going on. Um, so many
0: things happened this well, year. Well, let, let's
1: let's start there, I guess. Uh, was it was it an exciting was it was it an active year? Would you say was it an average mm-hmm. year? Was it and just in terms of like activity, interesting things happening? What, what do you think?
0: I think it was okay. Books wise, I think this is one of the best years in reading that we've had in a while. Mm-hmm. Um, There were so many good books and so many important books and so many important books that were good. And just it felt, as a reader, like a really excellent year Mm -hmm. to experience. So on the book side, I think it was a really good year. There was a lot of interesting stuff that happened. And we've had good conversations Mm -hmm. around those books. But I felt like life in publishing was a garbage fire this year. Like The internet was just sort of routinely terrible around publishing stuff and things just... Continued to happen that were not great. Mm -hmm. Some good things happened too. It was active. I think a lot of things occurred.
1: Yeah, a lot of, I mean, I guess what's interesting about it for me was that there wasn't a, I don't know, like it was interesting in its sort of benignly quotidian interestingness. Like there wasn't a huge story. There weren't no, there wasn't like Amazon didn't do anything crazy. Like a bunch of bookstores didn't close. There was no, there, there was wasn't no borders closing. Fifty Shades
0: of Grey. Yeah,
1: there wasn't a huge, yeah. there wasn't a huge seller like that. There were some big sellers and big stories, but there was like, there was a lot of interesting stuff. But it kind of felt like, I don't know, a good Saturday. You know, like when you have a good Saturday, like nothing really happens, <laughs> but you were yeah. feeling good and you did, you went to lunch and you know you had a good Saturday. Like it wasn't the best Saturday of all time, but you also weren't didn't have the pukes or you know something crazy didn't happen. <laughs> so it's like. That kind of felt like it was a good summer Saturday for publishing, as I guess is kind of the feeling I had about it. Mm. Um, I guess the other thing to to think about, too, is it was a year in which we saw, I guess, some trends that we've been sort of feeling over the last couple of years. feel like they kind of solidified, and we'll get to that in a little. Well, I guess I'm not Mm -hmm. sure. We talked – they're not – actually not on the podcast, but like print books not only held their own, but actually rose this year print book sales, audiobooks continue to just slaughter, you know, everything else in the books industry in terms of growth. Um, We felt subscription services kind of wobble, and they really fell to their knees in a lot of ways this year. So I think that's another thing that I I definitely Mm -hmm. felt is like a a few things that that we kind of had had our, our, you know, tendrils feeling out for the last really 12 to 18 months, I felt like we much got a much more solid sense of, yes, those are things that we're not just sort of crazy and feeling them. Um, those are real things out in the larger reading world. All right, let's get let's go through this. Um,
0: we got to get our first sponsor let Let's get our first, first. sponsor.
1: Tell me about our first sponsor.
0: Yeah, Mad Men Unzipped is back this week. It is, uh, the subtitle is Fans on Sex, Love, and the 60s on TV. It's by Karen E. Dill Shackelford, Cynthia Vinny, Jerry Lynn Hogg, and Krister Hoppen-Losinicki, or Losinicki, I'm sorry. Uh, this is the story of the Mad Men phenomenon. These uh, four authors are media psychologists and also dedicated Mad Men fans, and they explore how Mad Men's viewers make meaning out of the fictional drama. It includes interviews with contemporary, ad executives and it gets their views on the ad business in its modern guise and their perspectives on the show's past or the show's vision of the past um, and it's sort of a cutting edge psychological research approach that crunches and codes the fan online commentary to understand how fans use madmen to dis- uh, excuse me to mm-hmm. discuss and debate complex social issues. And um, it looks at questions like, what do the 1960s mean to us today? And how does the 21st century measure up against that really famously turbulent decade in advertising? Which characters do fans most identify with and which ones do they love to hate? How would fans change the Mad Men storylines if they could? What makes a good man? One of those central questions of the show. And how has the idea of what makes a good man changed over time? All sorts of things. And so in answering these questions, Mad Men Unzipped and the uh, media psychologists behind it look not just at online commentary, but also at fan fiction and cosplay and the cocktails that people made that were inspired by the show and vintage furniture collecting and all of the ways that fans of Mad Men have integrated the show into their daily lives and how it's affected their choices about work and leisure and love. Uh, I'm super interested in this. We both really loved Mad Men and have talked about it a lot. Did our little Mad Men finale after dark uh, segment earlier this year. So I'm personally really interested in this look. I love uh, an exploration into how a piece of popular culture has tied into people's lives. And so, the title, again, is Mad Men Unzipped Fans on Sex, Love and the 60s on TV. It is out now and available wherever books are sold.
1: Okay. Well, let's see. Um... Do we want to go in the order we have it on the agenda, or how do we want to it's do this? It's
0: like kind of random in the agenda, but I think the first thing on the list is the biggest, like consistent, ongoing story uh, yes, of publishing right, for the yes. year. That was stuff I found in my grandma's <laughs> attic.
1: We found, we found <laughs> or, Twain letters. We found maybe a Sherlock Holmes short story that was later discredited. What, what, we
0: found a new Harper Lee novel that one, that's not new. A new,
1: Harper, a new Harper Lee novel we found. That sits uh, on a
0: throne of lies. A
1: Dr. Seuss book. Remember that one? Yes,
0: right. And Edith there Wharton was, short
1: story, Charlotte Bronte poems.
0: There were so many. So
1: many different kinds of things. Yeah, so There the, was
0: some Cervantes thing that you and Amanda talked about uh, on an episode. Oh, that
1: was they found his bones.
0: Oh, right. Yeah, like okay.
1: It, it wasn't just, it was Cervantes himself, uh, apparently. <laughs> um, it's, yeah, I, I guess just, I don't know sure what to say about that, except maybe people just had more time this year to go rummaging about, or we hear about it more, or, you know, it gets picked up in the news a little bit more that, you know, hey, I found something interesting in my attic, or in my garage, or in my, you know, in a, in a steamer trunk that I found like in the river. The I don't even know where the stuff
0: is. Publishing antiques roadshow Seriously, here. Seriously,
1: yeah. Yeah. Um, that definitely one was, we're continually surprised uh, about that. I guess that leads us right into the big story of the year was Harper Lee. I mean, that Mm -hmm. was the, was enough. I remember distinctly, I was sitting in the office, in our Brooklyn office, uh, and Jen was sitting behind me, and it was, I think, right first thing in the morning, and I was like, what the, I saw the news, I'm like, Jen, is this real? And she's like, huh? We are both, like, freaking out about it, like, I I felt like it was maybe gonna be, I don't know, not what it was, like, maybe it was more of a manuscript, first draft kind of thing, but it turned out to be, at least as far as we know, and this leads to the rest of the story, a (laughs) fully-fledged... original version of a book that would later become To Kill a Mockingbird, even though if you would have given me this manuscript by itself and then shown me To Kill a Mockingbird, I would have thought they're not versions of each other. They're to, Ghost of the Watchman* feels like a sequel somehow to To Kill a Mockingbird because it comes later and the events right. that, are, that happen... Um, in to well, Kill and Harper Collins
0: kind of wants you to think it. Yeah, was. they want, but
1: in terms of like chronology, as much as anything. Right. It, right but right. it wasn't written as that way. Um, and then all the attendant things about, you know, Harper Lee's state of mind, her ability to consent, her lifelong reclusiveness, really since the book was published, which is fuel to the fire because, you know, it is possible that she just wouldn't say anything about it. Like that's a possibility, mm-hmm. even though most of us, I think. Feel like there is something going on with their trust and her lawyer, um, Ms. Carter down there. We have no proof of this, of course. Um, all we have are absences and silences, which, as we all know, it's very difficult to prove a negation. In fact, it's impossible. Um, so it's really been the gift that's kept on giving, and then kept giving after we said, you know, enough already. As right. we've and gone, and the gift
0: is like squicky yeah, feeling. Yeah, squicky feeling.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think you know the book wasn't good. It was certainly fascinating, if that distinction is meaningful.
0: Oh yeah, it is. Um,
1: it's, now that we're what six months behind it, do you feel like it tarnishes uh-huh. Lee slash Mockingbird?
0: I, I don't. Yeah. Like, and I was just talking about it on Twitter with someone last week. I don't think that in the long run this book is going to do anything to the legacy mm-hmm. of To Kill a Mockingbird. It wasn't good. People basically stopped talking about it immediately after yeah, it like came out. Yeah, like two weeks after everyone who was going to read it and have an opinion about it and write about it as a sort of cultural authority of any kind did that very quickly. And it was basically universally agreed that this was not a very good book, um, but that it's an interesting thing to have Mm -hmm. an earlier version of this beloved classic and to be able to see that process. So I think and hope that in the long run, Maybe pairing them up is a thing that writing teachers will yeah. do. Um, it does have more problems about race in uh, Go Set Watchman. And so it's interesting to ask those questions about how Harper Lee's ideas might have evolved and how the characters evolved and where we were with race in the country at the time. And so you could do some interesting things putting yeah. the two books together, but I don't think that it ultimately damages anything about To Kill a Mockingbird, especially as we are talking about knowing that this was an early mm-hmm. draft. It's not that her ideas evolved in the direction no. of racist characters. They evolved in the other direction uh, and having that be more out there. I, I still hope that there will be like a new version of the book at some point with a better explanation, yeah. which would be any explanation of what it is. Um, I'm still... Grossed out that it was packaged as a new novel by Harper Lee, yeah. um, intended to you know get sales from readers who aren't paying attention to publishing news because very few readers do and don't know. And it that, all of that stuff felt really gross to me. That it seemed like the publisher really trying to take advantage of the name Harper Lee and knowing that people would buy the book and choosing not to give them the full story about what the book was. But long term, I don't think it does anything. Harper Lee's legacy
1: is fine. Yeah, it's interesting. I think. In a way, I was thinking about this the other day. Is I think it's To Kill a Mockingbird is a much better book, but I think Go of the Watchman is actually a more interesting book. Honestly, to think about like, you know what what's going on. There's a, these long, very troubling discussions of race in Go of the Watchman in the back third of the book. Really, that's more interesting than anything that goes on with race in To Kill a Mockingbird. Like the weird thing about To Kill a Mockingbird, anyone who's thought about it and read it. read it recently with these sort of a racial consciousness, at least differently than maybe they read it when they were 12 or 13 or 14. Like it's all the, you know, Atticus Finch is stands up for, for Robinson and whatever, but it's not about them. It centers the white people. Like it's the the racial stuff is pretty occluded really. Whereas Mm -hmm. the, the, you know, the the can of worms about Southern liberalism at the time is really opened in go to set a watchman in an interesting way. So if you're asking me to write a paper, I think I'd choose mm-hmm. go to set a watchman. I guess that's what I'm trying to say at this point. Um, yeah, Collins too, I think you're, you're right on. Like if anyone, wh- whoever it is that decided, and it could have been from Harper Lee's estate, it could have been in Collins sales or marketing or editorial, wherever, wherever along the line someone in, decided not to be more forthcoming about what the novel was on the book itself is the loser. That, that's Whoever that is, I'd like to have a stern talking to. Sometime because I think that was the, that person's our turkey. Yeah, beer. that's the, that was the biggest, um, the biggest. I, I, I would say disservice to readers and Harper Lee um, mm-hmm. that it wasn't, it wasn't given context for what you were really given um, in a way that I found shock. I mean, really pretty shocking from a publicity yeah, and marketing and, standpoint.
0: And in the context of all the other stuff that's gone on with Harper Lee and all the other questions that you mentioned earlier uh, in the show that have been raised about her state of mind and her ability to make the decisions and the level of her involvement in what's been going on, that to me felt like just one more piece of this puzzle being... Ungood it was like, well, there's all these other questions, and now we've got a publisher that, for reasons that no one knows because no one talked about mm-hmm. them, whether it was the publisher or the estate or everybody together, has decided not to disclose all of the information that they could disclose to readers. And that just was like one more piece on the pile of gross. Yeah. Uh,
1: that, that's, that's the piece to me. Um, so let's go set a watchman. Uh, let's see. Let's go on. I guess let's just talk about the, some of the big publishing hits of the year, real quick. I have them down here. What? Mm-hmm the mm-hmm. trend we didn't see coming, I put this at the end, adult coloring yeah. books. <laughs> Can you believe uh, – the other day someone tweeted this. They follow, I guess, what the top 10 sellers on Amazon are given moment. Mm-hmm. They update all the time. And when this guy tweeted it and someone else retweeted it into my timeline, five of the top 10 best-selling books on Amazon print were coloring yeah. bo- books. Isn't that crazy?
0: <laughs> it is, but it's like – I think it's actually kind of cool. No, I'm not,
1: I'm not saying it's not uh, – complete no, ju- no judgment, just – I'm registering just complete shock.
0: (laughs) It is. Yeah, no, if you had done, I think Greg Zimmerman, one of our contributors, used to do a thing on the site where he would do like satirical predictions for the year in publishing at the beginning of each year. And if you had asked us last year to like generate Publishing headlines that would never happen. We wouldn't even have hit on mm-hmm. the possibility of adult coloring books becoming a thing, even as a joke. Yeah, it was very, it was very surprising. Uh, you know, uh, and, and we've written
1: about posts about it on the site. Some of our contributors have, it, and they do very well. Yeah. people are very interested. Uh-huh. You can see people are buying them through, through there's, the links that we use. It's it's a there's thing. There's research
0: that it's like just as good for your brain as meditation. Um, people love it. Yeah, I it's, mean, I'm not surprised. It stresses me out. people. I mean, it's it.
1: kind of like any. And not pejorative, but kind of one of those unthinking, crafty kind, like, I guess maybe sort of like knitting would be a good example where, you know, you're sitting there and it's kind of repetitive and soothing and you make something and it's, you feel creative, but it's also not super taxing. In Its own way, um, mm-hmm.
0: you can do it while you're doing other things. I was thinking,
1: no, I never yeah. talked about adult coloring books and audiobooks. Now, there we go. Mm,
0: uh, yeah, have to save a good that for bit. an
1: audible spot in the future. Actually,
0: that's a cool um, it's for a different show, but that's an Liberty. And I got an email about the All the Books podcast yeah. that there is a library that is listening to the podcast and having an adult coloring like book club while they do it. Oh, so that's interesting. They listen to the show and they do adult coloring books. Yeah. So totally pair, yeah, pair it with your audio. I love
1: that time. alone together time, as they call it for toddlers right. parallel play, mm-hmm. I guess is what that technique is. Oh, parallel play, yeah. <laughs> technically I like is. alone together. Yeah. That
0: sounds, uh, parallel play sounds creepy for grown ups, Jeff.
1: Yeah, anything with play and grown ups feels like I, yeah, you should be wearing a silk robe. <laughs> Moving <or
0: something>.
1: along, <laughs> uh, let's see another one. a Publishing trend, maybe we should. So that was one we didn't see coming a publishing trend. Maybe we should have authors writing their own fan fiction. I'm I'm referring, of course, here to uh, Gray by E. L. James, which is the POV flip of Fifty Shades of Gray. And now I, the name's escaping me of the Stephanie Stephanie Meyer flip of Twilight. What's the name oh, of it? Oh,
0: what what is it called? I don't know. I remember. can't remember
1: right now off the top of my head. Um where also
0: a thing people just didn't talk about after it came no. out.
1: And both of those, both of those books. I have no yeah. we know that Gray has sold very well, like up there with Ghost at a Watchman. In fact, you know, maybe maybe you'll win your bet, maybe you won't. Who's to say? Um but we didn't get I haven't seen any sales about the Stephanie Meyer book.
0: I haven't either. Um
1: but those are two things. I mean, basically, they're writing fanfic. This is what fans would do with a with a novel, right? They flip, they 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 um they they gender bend, they race flip, they alter po- points of view. Like, so Meyer and El James writing their own fan fiction is a thing that that is happening. Um, and I would su- I would expect this kind of thing to continue, uh, especially for IP uh, intellectual property that has huge. And consistent and ongoing fans, like as a way to give, you know, to sort of feed the fire, to feed the fandom, um, you know, to, to work on other things. Like we've seen a little mm-hmm. bit where Veronica Roth wrote like a fourth sort of chat book about four for the Divergent yeah. series. You know, Rowling has done this with Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them, which was a novella. Now that's going to be a huge, you know, movie franchise. So that stuff is happening a little bit. And I wouldn't be surprised if we get more and more of that as time goes on. Right. Um, I
0: think you're right about that. It's kind of, I don't think it's actually fan fiction since it's their own work. But it's that spirit. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. yeah. it's that spirit of fan fiction. And it's that poking, like authors poking at the adjacent possible of how can they keep the readers who love the universes of their stories plugged Mm -hmm. into those universes for longer, which is smart because it serves the readers, but also it's a commercial, uh, a smart commercial move. Uh, I've, I've been trying to think about what other stories and authors do we think would do this. Well,
1: George Order um, I mean, Patrick Rothfuss has done this a little bit yeah. with name of the wind. There's like, it's been a sort of, a, a I guess a side path story, you know, George R. Martin, I think has done a little bit, this with game of Thrones* short stories. I, you know, I think mm-hmm. any of those, if you've got a, a juggernaut, you know, keep them coming. Um, you know, kind of like we've seen actually though with the millennium series, the Elizabeth Solander. that's just another book in the series that came out this year, yeah. but the, the torch has been passed. Um, because those big fandoms like you they will be you know if you're a fan of something like that you're a fan forever like star wars this week is no better example right like Mm -hmm. there's desire to get more content out there and how authors and their agents and publishing houses and estates frankly um are going to handle that going forward is going to be very interesting to see okay um let's go back up to the top um Oh yeah, something predictably disappointing thing. You were so right about this. <laughs> um Zuckerberg's Facebook book club um to much
0: did nothing. Anticipation, it went nowhere. January
1: 2nd, uh I'm looking at the post that you dropped where uh-huh. and there was a is this going to be the new Oprah like we're going to save books and uh, I think I think the word we use is fizzle for this sort of situation. Yes. It it wasn't a thing.
0: It, yeah, it it kind of was a thing at first like the very first title that he picked sold several thousand copies mm-hmm. that week I remember the f- the first title we saw like it went it was not a very popular title and they weren't expecting it because they didn't get warning the Underpower so like, by a, Moses
1: name yes. I think
0: they were doing a reprint and then he picked on immunity which is interesting but we had the conversation about like is Facebook going to improve Facebook for Zuckerberg's book club or is it yep. going to fall prey to all the problems of Facebook and it totally did like very quickly the posts on the wall of the Facebook like year in books page became the kinds of things that you see on all of the spam book of troll wars, pages. It's like, you know right, you can't follow like- anything yeah, it's it's self-published authors like spamming stuff. It's people arguing with each other about things that aren't related to anything on the books. Nobody is moderating no. the page. Like they did do a couple they did author chats where you could show up on the Facebook page mm-hmm. and ask questions of the author, but even half of those comments were things like, "Will you read my manuscript?" <laughs> right. Like, and it just it very quickly became an unstory. Um, well, one thing I
1: think we know about Facebook is it can be it's at least in my use of it and what I see on our own Facebook page, it can be a good way to keep up with pages you like, stories you like, people you're interested in, whether you know them or not, right? It is a super bad way of communicating with people you don't know, really, in terms yes. of comments or Interaction of any kind,
0: and to try to have the kind of conversation that a book club
1: no uh, yeah
0: intends to generate, Facebook is not set up for that. There, the threaded comments don't work very well. You can't respond, and you can't really respond immediately. Right, um, things get out of order. If there are a lot of comments, things do get out of order very quickly. It's difficult to track. Like, I just part of me had I had some Schadenfreude here of like, okay, Mark Zuckerberg, now you can experience how hard it is to regulate mm-hmm. a thing. Yeah, on your I mean. Own. I was thinking about this
1: too, like, um, when I was looking over the notes, like what, what, I guess if I were to do this, if I were Zuckerberg and I wasn't invested in Facebook as a platform, like I wanted to have a book club online with other people where we could discuss, I think I'd go to Slack now. I think Mm -hmm. I'd set up some sort of Slack channel or a group, um, that just you can just manage it a lot better, and you can tag people, and there are some threaded comments, and you know it's available on mobile, and it's you know it's free yeah, or, or like I don't know. a
0: live blogging platform. Yeah, or something, something like, like Even that. Even Slack becomes unwieldy with you know, too many people having a, the same conversation, right. and
1: well, we also know this: that conversation doesn't scale. Like that's just the truth of it. Is, yeah, I don't think it's a. It's, it may not be a. Facebook is particularly like, bad at it, but I don't know if there's a great solution. They could solution.
0: have done some other interesting things mm. like. I think it's very indicative of just how Facebook is that Facebook didn't recognize that the way to have a Facebook book club wasn't to just build a page and expect people to have conversations on it like Facebook is unself aware about itself it does Uh, seem that way yeah Yeah. in many ways and so they could have done cool things like I'm certain that Zuckerberg would not have trouble getting access to authors and publishers they could have done like video yeah they're trying to push video they couldn't
1: do a video with some I mean whatever
0: right they could have done cool video they could have done like the Facebook book club podcast Mm -hmm. where mark zuckerberg talks to the author of the book that he read and talks about why he picked it and why why it was important and like maybe they had an email address where you could submit questions or comments for the show or something like there were a million ways to do it but on facebook was not the way and on facebook was like the only way that facebook was ever going to (laughs) chew
1: yeah right yeah, and because the, the, book, the book selections were super interesting. I They showed a plugged-in guy who was interested in the world, right? I mean, I, mm-hmm, that, yeah. cer- that part I certainly wasn't disappointed. In fact, I was pleasantly surprised by. Speaking of pleasant surprises.
0: Oh, yes, the best surprise. Uh,
1: President Obama's two-part, wide-ranging, in-depth fanboy interview with the great Marilyn Robinson.
0: That is the best gift of publishing this year. It really
1: year. was. And... We t- we talked about I think when that Facebook book club thing came out who we'd like to see do a book club and we're like Taylor mm-hmm. Swift I think I think I think Barack in his yes. post president years could lead the most interesting book club of all time I mean I mean he seems interested in books he's Clearly so freaking smart and he cares. He reads widely, like he makes a point to go shopping into putting a bookstore with his family he called Fates and Furies by Lauren Groff, his favorite book of the year. I mean, that's that's a literary that's a straight down the middle literary fiction title. Mm-hmm. Um so anyway, that that's one uh Uh, That was a great surprise and a real gift. And I'm thankful for that. I mean, genuinely thankful to have that moment. Yeah,
0: it was such a wonderful thing to read and that he was actually interviewing her and asking the questions and interested in her perspective. And it wasn't a weird PR stunt thing. It was horrible. I wasn't clear why he did
1: it, except that he wanted to.
0: I think that's yeah. That's the only reason he needs it. I mean,
1: it's not like he's um, trying. He's not trying to and, shore up the Iowa caucuses with and, Marilyn and <laughs> Robinson or anything, right?
0: And talk. Marilyn Robinson is
1: fascinating. Oh, she is. Like
0: the novels are so good, but her brain is just a fascinating place. And the essays always reveal that. And the interview that he conducted with her gets at some of the issues that she wrote essays about in the new collection, which is the givenness of things that came out last month. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it is wonderful. That's a book that I I wish were being talked about. More, but an, a very cerebral collection mm-hmm. of essays by Marilyn Robinson is not the kind of thing that's going to. I got to get. I got to read that. I got to
1: get. It's on that. so
0: good. It is so good. Um, speaking of pleasant, yeah, surprises, this is a random the, one
1: too. Go for the, the
0: it. most random thing that happened to us this year was that book Riot got a shout out on the TV show Younger. It's Crazy. On, and we didn't because most of us are kind of old. Yeah. Well, it's on. I mean, know. in fairness,
1: it's on TV land. I mean, come on. Right.
0: Yeah. yeah we did not know. A, about the existence of Younger. And then one day our Twitter feed exploded one night of people being like, oh my gosh, Book Riot, there was a shout out on Younger. And so then we very quickly watched Younger. I binged the whole first season and really loved it. Uh, but there was a, there's a scene, it's about a woman who's pretending to be younger than she is and she goes to work in a publishing house and they're like figuring out how they're gonna position a book and someone, one of the other publicists is like, yeah, there's Buzz building on Buzzfeed and Book Riot. And I was like, oh. Oh
1: yeah, that's <laughs> crazy crazy story. It was a very and season weird... 2 is coming out soon, I think. I saw a promo yeah. that it's coming out pretty soon.
0: So much, I think because we sit in our separate offices on the internet, it's at least for me it's easy to forget that there are like at times to not feel like there are other people on the other end mm-hmm. of this thing and those moments of like, oh right, there are people out in the world who see the thing that we make and who have cool jobs like writing? Yeah, and the show shows. is
1: about uh, son. The, the the conceit is that she's pretending to be younger than she is for her job yeah, in yeah. publishing. I think, right? Mm-hmm. Is that the idea?
0: Yeah, she's getting divorced. She's about like she's forty. She's getting divorced, and she wants to get to go back into publishing. She hasn't worked since she had her kids, and she knows that if she tries to go into like an entry level publishing job as a forty year old, it will never happen. Mm. So she says that she's twenty six.
1: Cool. Um. Let's see. Let's move on down the line. Let's see. Uh, so I guess we didn't know. The big, the big, I guess, debut novel of the year was supposed to be Garth Risk Hallberg's City on Fire. It got a $2 million advance. It was big news. Was that two years ago we first heard about that? It must have been the, I, the, the yeah, way the timeline it, for publishing works. I
0: think so. And there were something like... 20,000 oh, galleys Oh, that's the other
1: thing I remember sent out. is even more than the advance that struck me is the number of galleys they sent out that were at BEA and giving all over the places. Mm-hmm. And, and we've learned this week, um, if BookScan plus a little back of the envelope math based on what we know about BookScan's uh, lacuna in their, in their sales tracking is it probably hasn't sold 50,000 copies yet. Um, and it needs to sell probably 350,000 to break even. So mm-hmm. that ain't going to happen.
0: It's not. It's not gonna happen. I mean, I don't think it's even gonna happen when it comes out in paperback. I don't see how it like would. you can sometimes redeem a literary novel that doesn't perform well in hardcover by positioning it for book clubs especially in but paperback. But it's nine thousand it pages long book. to right, exactly. Aren't pick like book clubs Exactly, exactly. Book clubs aren't gonna read a nine bajillion yeah. page long book. Um, out in paperback and those are it's an, it's a $30 hardcover the paperback is probably going to be more expensive than average it, I just don't like I did not understand this from the beginning Um, but this seems like it's there was I read something recently I don't think we talked about it on the show but about what's going on with publishing and these crazy mm-hmm. advances for debut novels and it's publishers you know wanting to capture the thing that they think is going to be the big book of mm-hmm. the year but like who thought that the big book of the year was gonna be the nine hundred page novel about New York in the seventies written by like a middle aged white the guy. The thing I don't like, get is
1: like, what precedent is there in our lifetime? And I'm saying our lifetimes as readers. There's no for one. a nine hundred forty four page book being a giant seller that, like, I guess the Goldfinch, but it was five hundred pages, and she'd written two.
0: Right, she that's has not a, hit a debut before.
1: Uh, right, I can't think of anything equivalent. I just don't know if you're looking for precedence as a way of making a reasonable decision about it. The the reviews have been respectful to positive, um, from what I've seen. No one's been out there like it's so long, but oh my god, it's so good. Like that if but it's just not it just wasn't good. Yeah. it just was and, not going to
0: happen. And it's actually I think it it has been you're right, the reviews that have existed have been respectful to positive, mm-hmm. but it seems that it has not been as widely reviewed. Yeah. As I would expect, a book like this to be 944 pages, right? And that perhaps reviewers are choosing not to like. It is kind of a practice among some professional reviewers not to trash a debut novel, Mm. um, because that can have long-term consequences. And so they often just choose to make their statement about debut novels by selecting not to speak Mm. about that debut novel. Um, So the silence there is interesting. Um, The profiles that did come out were very fawning, um, but yeah, it just kind of didn't. It did. did, did, This book did not.
1: It did, but it did guess. not go anywhere. Um, on the and, other hand, and
0: how many other smaller like if you had given smaller advances oh to a bunch gosh. of other books and spread out your chances of getting a hit, I do not understand. Well, I remember this. Lena
1: Dunham's uh, advance was three million dollars, a lot, but at least that I kind she, of understood.
0: She sold a lot of books. Aziz Ansari's yeah. book, uh, his advance was in the you yeah, know, in and that book sold too somewhere, and it sold very well. I think Mindy Kaling yeah. gets those same kinds of advances, but her books sell very well. Like. It makes sense to me to give somebody a seven-figure advance if they're going to sell a floppity Julian copies. I mean, I'd also know but, that Scott
1: Rudin picked up the option for the movie of City on Fire very quickly, maybe even before the deal was done. So I wonder if some, like, they baked into the pie of their numbers, some movie mm-hmm. sale down the road. But I, my understanding is that something that gets optioned even by someone like Scott Rudin, the chance of it ever getting made are still not great. It's a it's a it yeah. seems like a strange bet. Um
0: Hollywood Development Hell oh, is a real yeah, thing. Right.
1: Um on the other hand, the debut novel that lit the world on fire it was The Girl on the Train by Paula Hawkins, broke all mm-hmm. kinds of records. Um Riverhead bless their hearts sure let us know how many ro- records they would break. <laughs> um and you know, do your own home there, man. I three million copies at least, I think. At least as of like July. Yeah.
0: There was I think that piece was from July in either the New York times or the Washington post about the sales. And it was like over 3 million at that point, I would assume after this holiday season, it is significantly more than just a
1: huge hit. Um, what, you know, these books take off and you don't know why something like, you know, lovely bones or, uh, water for elephants, you know, the big ones that are still, they're going to be on paperback favorites table at Barnes and Noble until we're all dead. I don't know why necessarily one takes off the other. I DNF girl on the train. Um, I don't think it was bad. I just wasn't interested. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't. I, I gave it fifty it pages, a nice and I couldn't
0: blurb comparing it to Gone Girl. I guess, and
1: enough people liked it that buy a bunch of books that it took off. And good for Paula Hawkins. I mean, you don't see something like that happen. And it started out in January, and it's been going all year long.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, Riverhead has done a really interesting job. It's been fascinating to follow what they've done to build on mm-hmm. that. was so often books come out and the advertising for the book happens right around the publication date if there is any and that's it and sometimes we hear from publishers who are like this book came out and there's some buzz and now we're going to do some advertising to capitalize on that buzz but riverhead has really figured out how to ride that train yes pun totally intended all year long um, and that's been fascinating to watch it'll be interesting to see what Paula Hawkins does next i was thinking about mm. Garth Kahlberg and how like it's really got to be tough i feel for dude like oh, yeah. you get a 2 million dollar advance there's all these expectations that your book is going to be huge then your book is not huge and how rough that must be, but if you're Paula Hawkins, it's also rough. Mm. Like, what do you do next to prove you you're not going to have the sophomore slump after your first book just skyrocket? Well, rockets? I mean, she can be... she can
1: ponder it on her giant pile of money, and same for Gar.
0: <laughs> right.
1: Yeah. Her her bed made out of money. She can she can faint on her fainting couch that's made out of uh, currency, <laughs> uh, cold hard cabbage. Um. Let's see. Let's do a little good story, bad story. Okay. Uh, let's do runner-up to the, my, our least favorite story of the year, which I think is the whole Sad Puppy, Gamergate, Hugo Award disaster. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and the long story short on that is over the last few years, the Hugos are a voted upon by Reader's Award, um, both for the nominations and – I think the no- – yeah, both for nominations and yeah. for the winners. And over the last couple of years, there's been increasing diversity of underrepresented voices in the Hugo's. We've had some winners, um, and then the, the the cohort of the world that doesn't like this um, mm-hmm. got on their internet, got on their modems, and basically took up uh, you know a, a campaign, an astroturfing campaign to take over the Hugo's. And the nominations for this year award were a bunch of like third tier, you know, some of them were overtly right-wing dudes um, whose work, by all accounts, I haven't read it, is not up to the snuff that is usually required to win some of these awards. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was a real it was a real problem, and it really threw that ter- world into turmoil. I think it, it it hurt a lot of people as well. Um, yes. The, the wider voting community, I think, did the right thing by giving no award in a bunch of the categories in which they were just sort of – they were literally, you know – taken over by these sad puppy slash Gamergate candidates. Um, it, you know, I think the tide was beat back on the whole. Does that, is that your sense of what happened? Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It, it looked like it had the potential to be really bad. Yeah. Um, and all of the statements that were coming out were really negative and horrible, but the, in the end result was not as bad as it could have been. It was, they staved it off. Yeah.
1: Um, so I feel like the sad puppy thing has been exposed for what it really is at this point.
0: Yeah, yes. I don't think that many people are believing that they're really there to just represent what they think are the best books. We've gotten better in publishing over the last (laughs) few years at saying, you know, well, that if you're – responding to movements to increase diversity with the phrase, I just want to honor the best yeah, books, yeah. you're also implying that the people who are members of underrepresented groups just don't write as well, and that that is not an acceptable statement, and also it's untrue. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, that, I think, we're, I hope we've seen, I don't think we've seen The Last of the Sad no, Puppies, no, I, no, no, but I hope that we've seen The Last of the Sad Puppies getting any real press or attention or traction. Like, once Gamergate shows up to support yeah, your I cause, know. you know you're on the wrong side. Of history, and that's just it's just got to go. It's too bad that it happened to the Hugos. They've definitely got some work to do to restructure Mm -hmm. like this democratic approach to you know voting for awards is great until you're until like the members of the community get sort of overtaken by a group that is angling to do something that's harmful to the community. And I think they've got some work to do, they've got some
1: work to do there. I mean. This, I don't want to minimize the damage done, but I do feel like it's more like more like a chronic illness that we're just going to be dealing with this.
0: Yes. But it's yeah. not
1: going to take over the host, right? You know, it's not, right. it's, it's not going to kill the host. <laughs> right.
0: I don't think there's a real risk of sad puppies winning this no, one. No, I don't think so either. Um, they are on the wrong side of the argument. They will be on the wrong side of history, but the fight is right. going to be ugly until they eventually go down. Um it, for one off terrible things that happened oh, this year. Man. This is I think hands down the worst. <laughs> yeah, I mean <laughs> We've got I guess. some garbage fire stories down the line, but this was I this was the most the, I found this to be the most shocking and memorable terrible behavior by a white dude in publishing. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. Like
1: I guess it was sad pup. Well, this is the um, poet Michael Derrick Hudson used a Asian name to submit his poetry for consideration. The Best American, I'm sorry, to the one the best. Yeah, um, it was actually nominated by From Prairie Schooner is where he used the mm-hmm. the the fake name originally, and then it got selected for Best American Poetry. Um, basically, you know, Yellowface is the word. Is like he was pretending to be yes. an Asian, um, and it worked. And Sherman mm-hmm. Alexie was the editor of this year's Best American Poetry. He apparently found out about the the deception before the anthology was published. Decided to keep it in and wrote a lengthy, honest, troubling, um, by turn explanation of why he did it. I think the sad puppy thing is worse, and it's and only because just the sheer bodies involved, like the number mm. of people and the level of vitriol. Like this is, again, I'm not trying to minimize this, but in, in, in a Olympics is no fun. But if we're just sort of doing it for the sake of the structure of the show, this is one guy as opposed to like hordes of people spending a lot of time really trying to screw up like a huge literary award. Yeah, so, I mean, whatever. It, I, it, it goes back and forth, but...
0: Yeah, I disagree because the sad puppies were so overt. Uh, like, th- that's... To me, it's the difference between like the overtly racist person and the one who like thinks that they're going to achieve their racist means by being sneaky. Mm-hmm. And the sneakiness of this was what really I thought was disgusting about it. That And then... The Best American Poetry... Anthology perpetuates the sneakiness by the, the page that the public, that the poem is published on says Yi Chu. And you only find out that that's the pen name if you turn to the back yes. of the book where every poet in the anthology has a bio. And then it explains that he, that this is the pen name of this person. And here's why he wrote this pen name, uh, wrote under the pen name. And he had been published under his own name before. It wasn't that he had been like closed out of publishing, which even if he had, would not be a reason to to take on literary yellowface and submit under another name but it was like a well a, you know it Affirmative action isn't fair to white mm. people, so I'm using a pen name for a group that I think gets all the advantages. Right. And the there was a really wonderful essay I should have found the link before the show um, that a woman wrote for BuzzFeed a, who is a poet um, who is an Asian person and who wrote about like how far off you have to be to think that um, that they are getting benefits. Um, so to me this was it was really gross. I. You and I disagreed on the original show where we discussed
1: Mm.
0: it about Alexi's approach to it. I don't think the poem should have been published. Like, he took the the response of like, well, I liked the work and he submitted good work and it deserved to be one of the best poems of the year. But that to me, that's rewarding bad behavior. Um, And then participating in this like sneaky thing that just puts the bios at the back of the book. Like why not put his real name on the poem on the page that the poem is published on? There were ways it could have been done better, but I don't think it should have been done at all. Um, And there were plenty of people, you know, nodding their heads silently at the internet who were like, yeah, Yeah, right guys do have it right. Off. we should submit under women's names now we should say that we are other races cuz they get all the benefits and that affirming that is bleh.
1: yeah <laughs> and you know the the twin story um which i don't have in the notes right now is we we had a story about a woman who did the same yeah, thing yeah. with using a man's mm-hmm. name instead of a woman's name um mm-hmm.
0: and the responses and had, that she got from agents and got more
1: considerably more positive results i think the problem with both of both stories, and Michael Derek Hudson, and I wish I could remember the woman's name. Well, I'll try to find it for the show notes. Mm-hmm. It's also the sample sizes are so small. Like the statistician, the, the amateur statistician in my mind is is sort of worrying because <laughs> Hudson says, you know, I, I submitted this poem forty times as myself, it got rejected, and then I s- switched the names and it was rejected nine times before it was rejected. Well. Mm-hmm maybe it has something to do with the name. Maybe it doesn't, right. You know, like,
0: right. Right. Yeah. You, you don't, don't know. know.
1: Um, and, and the other woman's, I think hers was a little more statistically significant just because the, the sheer volume and then the, the positive response, like, cause that was mm-hmm. about requests for manuscripts. And this was more, and, and the Hudson's poem was about just getting submitted, but both of the, they're, they're two signs of the same rusty coin, which is it matters. Um, what name you use, but it matters differently.
0: An, right. An unconscious bias is unconscious real. An unconscious
1: bias is real. And Alexi talked a little bit about, and we talked about, I think one of the better moments we've had on the show this year, Frank, is we talked about he, Alexi himself was sort of a, un, uncomfortable with the extra moment he gave to a mm-hmm. writer that he, he made a snap judgment about that may not have been, you know, as representative as, as should be in normal circumstances and we kind I think we both kind of came to the conclusion is we shouldn't be nervous about that pause uh, right. anymore. Whereas with the young woman who submitted under a man's name, that was really a showing of systemic, you know, that was about systemic underrepresentation, and and the other side of like, actually mm-hmm. there is no. There is no unfair, quote-unquote, advantage given to people who are historically underrepresented because people are liberal and trying to fill out the diversity in anthologies. Like, that's not a thing. That's really not a thing.
0: Right, it's not. Um, It's like reverse... We have to say all the time on Facebook, reverse racism is not not a thing. thing. Yeah, not a thing. Reverse sexism is not a thing.
1: So those are, I think, two of the more disheartening stories Mm -hmm. of the year, um, that there's a lot of work Uh, to be done. As much as, like, we can say that Gamergate and Sad Puppies, like it's kind of a sideshow, a painful and hurtful sideshow. Mm-hmm. Well, at least we can say it's a sideshow. Where I think this Hudson thing and the uh, the other the other story about submitting under a man's name, those aren't sideshows. Those are systemic problems that aren't going to be easy to root out. That's going to take some time and consciousness and thinking about different ways of approaching. Right those situations. Let's Um, talk about some good stuff. That was a a, stone cold bummer. Now we
0: can can go to the Department of Progress is happening. Um, There were several things that occurred this year that were great signs for publishing, becoming more progressive, recognizing the world that we live in, doing the things that we want publishing to do. One of those is, uh, we talked about very recently, the World Fantasy Awards have decided that the Lovecraft Award will no longer be called the Lovecraft Award. uh, That someone who was not avowed racist uh, should not Be the name that goes on the award um, for anything, but the world of science fiction and fantasy has been populated by writers of color and women for so very long, and they're finally just beginning to get recognition. There was a wonderful grassroots movement Mm -hmm. um, in the sci fi fantasy community this year to get Lovecraft's name off the award, and the people who run the award have said, Yes, we will take his name off of it. Um, So Excellent. A plus. Very good. Glad to see that (laughs) happening. It'll be really interesting to see who they replace uh, Lovecraft with or if they just give it some sort of generic name. I know there's been a push maybe to name it after Octavia Butler. So we don't know what that will be. In the line of diversity inside publishing, Lee and Lowe, which is a publisher that we've talked about on the show many times before, decided to conduct a diversity baseline survey where they would collect data from as many publishers as were willing to participate to find out about the gender, race, sexual orientation, and disabilities Mm -hmm. of the people on staff um, and reviewers um, inside publishing. And... It was kind of a slow start, but both Penguin Random House and Hachette have signed on. Macmillan has signed on. Scholastic has signed on. Workman, some of the big houses and many of the smaller publishing houses have signed on that they're going to make their uh, employees available to take this survey that will be distributed. And then it'll be aggregate results about the overall state of publishing. Mm-hmm. We won't be we won't get to see, like, this is what happens in Penguin Random House and this is what happens right. in Workman. But such a step in the right direction to see publishers acknowledge that they're not doing this themselves Um, it does not seem that like inside one of the big publishing houses someone is paying attention to their numbers and if they are they're not talking about it publicly Um, so signing on to participate in a survey that will contribute to overall aggregate results to get a baseline where are we in publishing and how far do we have to go um, in order to have a diverse industry at every step on the chain Um, so I was really heartened to see that happen and then to see the big, some of the big publishers decide to participate.
1: Yeah, that's really interesting there as well. I mean, I think there were, I don't know, it feels a little bit different to me this year in terms of the talk that we do about um, giving underrepresented voices their fair shake. Um, mm-hmm. I felt like, I don't know that the, the tables have turned, but I do feel like diversity is now not something that is being discussed as something that needs to happen but almost it's like it's now the new table stakes in a way like mm. maybe we're not quite there yet but it's part of the it's not it's no longer something people are saying should be part of the conversation it is part of the conversation now and that's not to say everything is going great there's there's still a lot of work to be done but there is no longer any kind of i don't know systemic doubt it. yeah right or it's not ignorable anymore um, at least from where I sit in the, in the you know, the, another story I have about Meg razoff here is another example of, mm-hmm. you just can't be either willfully obtuse or unwillfully obtuse about where we need to go in terms of giving people the opportunity to tell their stories and different kinds of stories from different kinds of people um, that have historically not had their, had their, their turn. Um, in a fair way, so I guess that 's one thing as well it's like I think all of those are examples of that's you know that 's now part of the discussion there 's a lot of ways to go, but i don 't think anyone who works in publishing now that that 's any way attuned to anything is not aware that this is something that needs to be worked on going yeah.
0: forward and Scholastic announced I think we talked about it on our live show in November that they were adding a whole like Not imprint, but essentially a whole list within their list um, of diverse titles and things that will be marketed to scholastic book clubs in particular and the stuff that go out to schools um, to support diverse voices. One of my other favorite Progress is Happening uh, stories of the year was that First Book, uh, which is our partner uh, nonprofit organization for the year. created an effort to launch 60,000 new to paperback books um, as a market driven solution to making mm-hmm. diverse stories available and affordable and relevant um, to serving kids in need. And earlier, uh, they announced this at the beginning of the year and I back in the fall, just another a month or two ago, the first ones did start coming out. Uh, so that's been very cool. Uh, to see an organization decide, well, part of this, part of the job is to put more books into yep. the world and we're in a position to do that. And so they have um, really wonderful work there from a great organization. It, it, it has been like there have been some awful things this year, but there have been some really yeah. good steps. Yeah, I,
1: I, I agree. Um, I think it's a two steps forward, one step back, as we've seen with with Sad Puppies mm-hmm. and uh, Best American Poetry situation. But on the whole, it does feel like the the wheels are grinding <laughs> in the right <laughs> direction. That's another Book yes. nerds are the coolest story. This is so cool. Um, Harry Potter favorite. fans ran a crowdfunding campaign for LARPing as, as Hogwarts in this Polish castle that looks like, kind of like Hogwarts. So they, 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 yeah, it they raised more than a million dollars to buy the castle. Um, it's the College of Wizardry, a live-action role-playing game set in the castle. And they bought it, and it's going to be available, and you can go do it.
0: It's just the coolest.
1: And they raised 25% of the target in the first 15 minutes.
0: Man, the book nerds are amazing.
1: And the, the, the HP mafia is serious. I mean, they uh, the, the HP fandom is, it's up, I mean, you got to say, I think it's Star Wars and HP, right? Like in terms of pop yeah, culture well, and, fandom, I think those are the right, two. and
0: now Harry Potter is into its second generation yep. of fans. Yep. It's, you know, it's... It's not going anywhere. We've... We have discovered in four years of running the site that there is no end to the number of Harry Potter posts that you can run that people will be interested in. Um, I think in a, like any given month, BuzzFeed runs like 25 know, things about Harry Potter. And I make fun of them, but um, I can say,
1: well, I mean, I make fun of like one day, I was right. like, well, there's six Harry Potter things on the site on BuzzFeed <laughs> right. Books today, but like I, you know what, that's responding to it. appetite, you know, that's.
0: It is that, and it is just this unending appetite for Harry Potter and for that world that JK Rowling created. It's incredible incredible. And the fans do such cool things. Mm -hmm. Also, that's a like gift of the internet is that fans can connect with each other and come up with a campaign like this and then run it and fund it. And you can go to the castle and do it. I just, I just loved this story. It was such a pleasant surprise to come across the week that we came across it back in, oh, back in March. This is an older Older
1: uh, older code, sir, but it checks out. Um, so let's go. Let's see. What else do we like from this year? Oh yeah. Okay. So (sighs) <sighs> sad face developments. And I don't know that we're at mm-hmm. the end of this story or a different part of its life cycle, but subscription models for for readers. Mm-hmm. Uh, Oyster is now part of Google. Um, I, I have yet to see anything come out of Google that reflects a change in UI or anything like that, but maybe yeah. I don't. that's coming. The
0: Oyster service, I don't think, technically goes away until January. Oh, is that right? So you can still use Oyster. It looks like they're in a weird holding pattern yeah. there, so there's no news about what Google is doing with the oyster technology mm-hmm. yet.
1: Um Scribd Scribd is still around. It's had to change its business model in terms of it used to be all you can eat audiobooks, now it's to one credit per month per your subscription in addition to all the other audiobooks, uh, ebooks and comics you want to eat. Um it doesn't seem like that's taking off at this point. Um they've added sheet music and some other things recently, so I, I don't maybe they're diversifying into you know basically any kind of two dimensional text like object you can yeah, get which it is once yeah
0: it's an interesting thing in and of itself yeah it is
1: it's is super interesting i've never considered sheet music as a possibility for a subscription but it makes perfect sense mm-hmm. in its own way um, but they certainly haven't taken off you know there's no one to go to i think no. i think we do have a better sense now of what the problems are with a subscription yeah, the, model for readers?
0: The, like the customer who's most likely to buy the subscription. Your early adopter puts somebody, you out of
1: business. That's the problem. Right, is a power yeah.
0: reader. And these subscription services, at least in the business models that we've seen them exist in so far, can't serve the power reader and stay in business. They really need the person who, it's like, is the breeding equivalent of joining a gym but only going once right. a month. Like They need the reader who pays the nine ninety nine a month but only reads one book and really doesn't cost them any money. But your early adopters are going to be the people who read the most and can get the most from an all-you-can-eat sort of thing. It's a it, that, it's a really interesting problem. Mm-hmm. I don't know how somebody is maybe going to solve it, um, but there is that new um, Simon & Schuster. Oh, no, not Simon Is it Simon yes. Schuster? There's that new romance app, Crave, uh, that we talked about last week on the show. Somebody's going to try it specific to power readers of romance. There, um, Laura Hazard Owen, I
1: think, wrote in Neiman Lab, I think, about how one reason could be that the, the structure of the deals that the subscription services are signing with the big publishers – aren't friendly because they get paid per use rather than Mm -hmm. my understanding, at least is how Netflix and Hollywood and studios work. Whereas they basically buy the rights to stream it for a set amount of time. And it doesn't matter if zero people watch it or 10 billion people watch it. The, the, the fee is the same so that your power readers don't destroy, Mm -hmm. your power users don't destroy you.
0: Some of the publishers were very open when these subscription services started coming out about how they didn't really want to participate at all. And Penguin Random House said they never would. And only would. had audiobooks, um,
1: right? They didn't have regular yeah, e-books um, on there.
0: Because they didn't want to cannibalize their book buying mm-hmm. audiences. And so there was some incentive on the publisher side to not make a good and not make a deal that was good for the right. reader or good for the subscription service because the publishers didn't really want the readers to be reading on Oyster or on Scribd. They want your ebook dollars and your hardcover dollars and your audiobook dollars. Mm. And it's. Uh, that tension between the business model that's really trying to serve a certain kind of reader and then the customer that publishers want uh, is also a, a really big open question. I You're very right to,
1: to mention that because it also ties into what we said at the top of the show about the resiliency of print books um, and independent bookstores and the plateauing, at least for now, it seems, of e-books. And I think both the subscription story and that story the, the story behind the story there is defensive plays by big publishers to keep their core business largely intact and unchanged from how it mm-hmm. has been and, and one is not giving subscription models a good deal but also the way they've been pricing their ebooks is that right. really mm-hmm. protects print we talked about it a couple weeks ago and I, I think it was the name of the wind or something else that was coming out Oh, it was that it was that that Patrick Rothfuss side path Kingkiller Chronicles mm. book that was new in paperback, and their paperback was less expensive than the ebook on Amazon, and as long as that is the case, that's a really good way to protect print sales. Now, is that a good way to go toward the future? I don't know the answer to that. Um, maybe publishing, maybe book reading on the whole, it will head towards audiobook and print and subscription on the whole. And the publishers, we know them will get hurt and go away or something like that. But for the time being, publishing has shown the ability to defend itself from these, you know, disruptive technologies and services. Um, And I don't know how long that maybe it's going to hold. Maybe there's something about print that really is special. Mm -hmm. That's something I think we're still thinking about. And there's been a lot of Triumphant is wrong, but um, almost gloating kinds of responses to the numbers coming out about print and ebooks, I think that kind of gloating and feeling of victory is premature, to say the least. I I actually don't know if it's actually good for books and reading on the whole. I I really don't know. But at the moment, that seems to be where we are. Again, is this just one battle in the ongoing war, or is this really a sense of what the new normal will kind of be? I think those are very open questions. Um, Let's see. Where do you want to go next?
0: Oh man, we kind of have to start on the wrap Yeah, we kind
1: of do, don't we? Um, so we want to make, we want to do our few eulogies. We lost some folks this year: um, Eel Doctro, James Salter, Oliver Sacks, um, Peter Matheson. Um, mm-hmm. All all left us this year. Um, all four of them people. I'm, you know, maybe it's because we we picked the the names we noticed because who we are. But all four of them very important writers to me. I have to say, mm-hmm. uh, Salter, yeah, and Salter particularly, Sacks
0: especially um,
1: for me. So. You know, best uh, fare thee well to those guys and um, the work remains and that's one of the amazing things about books, right? Is that the work stays behind. Um yes. let's do let's do our Define the Year books and we gotta get out of here.
0: <sighs> okay, so we agreed yeah, our that we four, couldn't our, talk our, about it. R S T L
1: and E were a little life <laughs> between the world and me, Ghost, Ghost at of the Watchman, and Girl on the Train.
0: Okay. So I think Purity yep, was interesting.
1: One. I had that one on my list too.
0: Because the conversations around it were not what the conversations around Jonathan Franzen have been in the past. It felt to me like a not a sea change, but reflective of you cannot be the kind of writer that Jonathan Franzen is and the kind of guy that Jonathan Franzen is and put out the kind of book that he does with the kinds of statements about women that are in the book Mm -hmm. and that he made about women in interviews surrounding the book and expect to be universally praised as a genius. Um, People who are critical of... Those statements and that kind of art and that way of being an artist now have voices that must be listened to. Um, And so that was like purity came out and then also was not one of the big books that everyone talked about being amazing. And typically a Jonathan Franzen book is one of the big everybody should be reading this like critical darlings of the Mm -hmm. year. Um, So what happened with purity, I thought was really interesting and indicative of changes in publishing and acknowledgements of other voices that matter. Um, I was like, frankly, pretty happy that purity was the big story of the year.
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, interestingly, I've got a couple that weren't published this year but were big books for the zeitgeist. One's The Martian by Andy Weir. The movie came out mm-hmm. was a huge hit. We talked about it on the show throughout the year seeing people reading it all over the place. Um, so in terms of books that were out there in the zeitgeist, not just weren't published this year, but were the books of 2015 in terms yeah. of what was talked about and reading, the movie was good. It's going to be around award season. The book is interesting. We have in our notes of things to be excited about. i mention real quick. Um, Andy talked about what his next book is, and it's going to be set on the moon. Another hard sci-fi book with a female protagonist. All very interesting. All my bells are ringing on all the levels about that. So many. I'm um, interested in that. Um, I think another book that didn't come out this year that's out there in the zeitgeist, kind of like as a tangential thing, but the Ron Chernow's um, Alexander Hamilton biography. A bunch oh, of people yeah, are reading yeah. because of the Hamilton music. Ha- I think Hamilton, the musical, and Star Wars: The Movie are the two big pop culture things of the year. To be honest, like I think those are the two ones, mm-hmm. and that the um, that the Hamilton Chernow biography is so central to that story is interesting. I see a lot of people picking it up. A lot of people are giving it as gifts and talking about reading it. Um, on the literary fiction side, I don't know that there was a bit. You know, the book I think that's more, it's going to be around a while is the the coda to the Alana Ferrante Neapolitan novels. Mm-hmm, st-
0: that was on my um, list too.
1: And the the uh, the the story of the Lost Child came out early in the year. It's the fourth and final of the Neapolitan novels. These are on my list to read in the new year. Now that they no longer. Um, Transgress uh, O'Neill's Razor, which is starting a series while it hasn't been complete. I'm very much looking forward to diving into those. I think those, that definitely was one of the books of mm-hmm. the year, too. What else do you have on your list?
0: I had Ferrante and all of the mystery around who Mm -hmm. Elena Ferrante really is as one of the stories, because there was all this press about how Elena Ferrante refuses to do press. She gave whoever Elena Ferrante really is, gave like two interviews and then talked about, you know, opting out of the PR machine. But being an anonymous writer with a pen name who's talking about opting out of the PR machine is its own way of participating in the PR machine. Playing Uh, Playing
1: it like a violin, I would say.
0: Right. Yeah, it's. Fascinating. I've had some fun shower thoughts about like who would be the most surprising and or ridiculous reveal. Jonathan Franzen, of, <laughs> like yeah, John, it's maybe yeah, John or like James yes, Patterson, yes, like, yes. And is Elena Ferrante someone whose name we really like? An, do we know that writer under a different name already, or is this really an unknown person? I want that reveal to come out at some point, point. Um, and I wonder if we'll get it in the same. If we'll get it at all, but if it'll come out in an accidental way, the way that the Robert Galbraith, J.K. Mm. Rowling thing leaked out, like will whoever, a.k.a. Elena Ferrante is like, will someone talk about it at a cocktail party that shouldn't talk about it? (laughs) it will get picked up. But just all the the uh, obsessive love for those books, the Ferrante fever is a big story. And then the mystery, the very intentional mystery around who the writer is as well. Um, like, like, that's a true publishing yes. moment. Like, look how great you are for not doing PR by talking about not doing PR. Super
1: interesting. Um, wh- one of my books of the year is is, an, is a, an absence rather than a presence. Really wasn't a breakout YA book this year, as far as I could tell. Right. Do you do you have? Yeah. I mean, is that your sense of it too? Again, the, we are both sort of sideline observers yeah. of the YA scene, but you usually will pick up if there's a if there's one that really crosses well, and there over.
0: There wasn't a like there certainly wasn't a breakout series yeah. of a of the Hunger Games Divergent. Variety, Twilight, um, any of those. The closest that I think I've seen is an Ember in yes, the Ashes by yes, Sabah yes. Tahir. Um, was one of our best books of the year. Book Riot. Lots of readers loving it and talking about it. Um, so that's probably the closest I think that I've seen um, to a big YA book. But nothing on. We didn't get anything on the scale of a uh, Suzanne Collins, Veronica. My Roth, my award um, um, for the like biggest that.
1: divergence between getting press and getting read is The Nightingale by Kristen Hanna, which has yes. sold a billion copies. Um, it's historical fiction uh, set in World War II. It sold a ton, and no one talks about it. Um, it, was runner, it was the winner of the historical fiction mm-hmm. uh, category in, um, in uh, the Goodreads Choice the good Awards. Reads. And I think if I've got this right... It would have, it, based on the total number of votes, it would have beaten Ghost of a Watchman if it were placed just in the best fiction category. Like if they just threw them all together, mm. uh, it won more. So I think that's that's always an interesting book for me because there's always one, right? It's a big book club book, right. um, and
0: you're like, where did where it come, did
1: it come from? from? Who's reading it? Like, it, it's not something that you're going to see in wrap ups on, you know, like the New York Times notable books or anything like that. It's just, it's a huge, I, it's commercial fiction. They sell. I don't know that they're critically interesting. I'm not saying they're not interesting. I'm just saying they're not critically interesting. I'm going to make a huge distinction. Don't email me um, about that. (laughs) Good luck with with that. that. Um, So that's one that that was definitely on on my list as well. This Mm -hmm. is one, and again, this is more Jeff's particular interests and what I'm doing, right? Well, I'm reading more nonfiction and science and technology, but Neurotribes, did you read this book? It's on my list. I haven't read um, it. I've yet. seen quite but a few. But Steve Silberman, yeah, right? It was really interesting. It's about neurodiversity and like kind of decentering what we understand normal brain function to be like, and personality, and brain chemistry, and different ways of understanding and being in the world. In terms of like change, like a book that's really sort of timely and maybe even a little forward-looking. That one, I think, is really interesting. I've seen a lot of people talk about that. Mm-hmm. Um, the Elon Musk biography was really interesting. He's a man of the moment. I think we're going to be living in a world in which we hear a lot about what Elon Musk is doing for the next couple decades. And that book was like timely and right on the money and super interesting about where we are in technology and venture capital and how we understand our relationship to these quote-unquote genius public figures. I thought that was really good. So those are sort of my ideas that are out mm-hmm. there in the world, but not necessarily like weren't huge books of the year, but like were the book incarnations of these larger trends and conversations that were going on.
0: Interesting. I
1: cheated. Is that cheating? Do you like that? Or is that cheating? I'm not sure. It's, okay. no, it's cheating. That's, that's what that voice.
0: I'm okay, Rebecca in where I particularly am right mm. now. I'm so resistant to Elon Musk. Everything, uh, interesting. Yeah. But- yeah. <laughs> um, I one of the ones that I wanted to see talked about more, and that I think would have, except for living in the shadow of Between the World and Me, was *Negro Land* yes. by Margot Jefferson, um, a really excellent companion uh, and. Equal, equally good and important book where The Coats is about uh, living as a, particularly as a black man in contemporary society and the history mm-hmm. of racism. Jefferson comes from a very privileged background in a wealthy black community in Chicago. And the book is essentially an indictment of respectability politics and growing up black, but being taught that you needed to behave as white as possible or to draw as little attention to your blackness as possible to, to still be considered a respectable member of the community and the anger that she feels about that as she grows up and begins and she's a really wonderful cultural critic and so sharp so to see her turn her eye onto her own life experience was really Wonderful, and then there's a great the last chapter of the book is I think the best laying out of the argument for intersectionality in feminism and in uh, race work that I've ever read. Um, but I want to see that book go much yes. bigger. I think that if it had come out farther away from Between the World, it and almost Amy would to come have out seen first. that. Yeah, and it's it's also interesting. Like this is an interesting and problematic thing about publishing is that there can yeah. be like one book about race per year, and that Coates was the one who got the spotlight for it this year. And that's not his fault. It is a wonderful book. But we've got publishing and reviewing and book media have to do better than there can be one. Uh, I thought Negroland was really eye opening.
1: Yeah, that's a really good pick. I wish I picked that. Darn you for picking that. Um, My last (laughs) one that I have noted down here, it's kind of the flip side of the, the Nightingale in terms of a critical darling, like if you're a book person who lives in Brooklyn, this might be your favorite book of the year. It's great. I'm just saying it's like what's it The Argonauts um, by Maggie oh, yeah, Nelson. Maggie Nelson. Um, great, speaking of short, great little books that are part memoir, part narrative. Um, there's She falls in love with this guy named Harry Dodge. This is a true story. Apparently, I don't know much about what's real, what's not, what's fictive, what's not, I have to say. I, I haven't done...
0: It's laid out as memoir. Yeah, essay.
1: memoir essay. So I think it's all true-ish. I don't know, as, <laughs> as memoir essay tends to be. Right. However
0: you understand. Um, but it's about to be.
1: love and it's about you know language and it's really interesting. I think it's really good book and it was a darling of you know I'd say the the literati to, to not use that pejoratively, like people who work in and around books who are plugged into books. Now, if you aren't plugged in books, I'm not sure you heard of this book, to be honest, though I think you should have. Really interesting. She falls in the Dodge, who is gender fluid, so has that piece, which I think is also part of the conversation we're having right now. So it feels of the moment um, in that way, too. So that's that's another one. If you like introspective, thoughtful, whip whip smart is even sort of pejorative, like really Intellectual work and also really guide prose and difficult questions, and it's a, it's short too. What I should, what I should have to say is, is is goes in its favor. 160 pages. Um, mm-hmm. Maggie Nelson's *The Argonauts*. I think that's one where, you know, you give it give it time, but it could stand up there with some of the the more literary memoirs that stick around for a few years that are in people's consciousness. So those are my picks. That's all. Are you out? You get them all.
0: Yeah, I'm. Well, I was thinking about H's for Hawk because oh, I'm like always yeah. perpetually thinking about H's for Hawk. Now it's just a cycle that runs in my brain, <sighs> yeah, nonstop. And it, I thought that H's for Hawk was going to be a book like The Argonauts was that it was going to be like a critical literary darling of a memoir. Um, but it went so much yeah, bigger it and got so much recognition that w- I, one of the interesting but smaller stories of publishing, I think, also is that we're getting good at these memoir essay things that purport to be highly personal, mm. but that are really a person telling a their individual story that is reflective Birds. of feelings and experiences that everybody mm. nods their head at and can recognize. I think, yeah, I um, think
1: I love H's for Hawk. So everything that comes after this, I think one reason it does is is the subject matter is safer than
0: mm-hmm. the Argonauts. That's fair, sure. right? Well yeah, it's grief the activating event is the death and it's of a father and everyone it's, you know experiences there's nothing about falling in love some with a, someone who
1: might be a dude and might be a lady. I mean I'm I'm just not sure we're or ready neither, for that to be right, a big yeah. hit. Not that it shouldn't be again, just in terms of what the what the the subject matter is, I think for where we are and given the biases that are out there I'm not surprised, I guess, that H yeah. and Hawk. Though I think yeah, I if, think Argonauts but is better. Like, I mean, I don't know. We can argue about this.
0: The pitch for H is for Hawk. Yeah, I don't think we no, need to no, argue no, about no. it. I, I like Maggie Nelson yeah. too, but the the pitch for H is for Hawk is like she channels her grief by training Hawks, and you're like, oh uh-huh. uh-huh, yeah.
1: Well, and it's <laughs> right it's off so the page. It's, good. I mean, I don't know what it is, and I, I didn't necessarily feel this way, but the, I don't know why this is. This is that there only can be one story, right? We're, I'm kind of doing the same thing, but if yeah, I'm making yeah. a case for one, why one, why why one sold more than the other? There's something about, and I didn't, wasn't sure I was going to be into H's rock to be honest. So I picked it up because people were raving about it.
0: I was so pleasant, and from surprised page one, I was in,
1: and I don't know how you mm-hmm. what sort of sorcery that She's is. Magic. It was, it was amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, which the argonauts is a little There's more difficult. There's wizardry in that yeah, book. Yeah, there, sure. there very much is. I'm glad you mentioned H for Hawk. Um, I already got my uh, personal idiosyncratic darlings out of the way, so I sh- wasn't sure I could throw one more, <laughs> one more in yeah, there. Yeah, that
0: was that was my last one of uh, like books that I thought really were indicative of what happened this year. Um, so, quick future stuff we're excited yeah. about. You mentioned earlier, Andy Weir's next novel will have a female lead. It takes place on the moon. I'm here for that. Uh, he's been open in this first interview with HuffPo about having never written a female main character, and that he is hopeful that he did a good job by that. Um, the nervousness is a good happy. sign, at least,
1: right? Like the yeah, conscientiousness, right, exactly. knowing aware, it's a thing to be paying yes, attention. To. He's aware
0: that he might not just naturally be. <laughs> well, good I'm a dude; I can write and anything. He, Right, he's thinking about it. The female characters in The Martian were, I thought, pretty good. They didn't, we both agreed they didn't get as much screen time yeah. as they should have in the movie. But that's not really under his control. Um, The final book in Jonathan, in Justin Cronin's mm-hmm. Passage Trilogy, is going to come out in 2016. It's called City of Mirrors. A few of our teammates mm-hmm. are currently reading it, so that's a thing. And the big story that broke the internet this week is that the Harry Potter yes. play, The Cursed Child, that we've been talking about is just a thing that Will exist, um, has a black actress cast as Hermione, and the terrible garbage fire people of the internet hated this, and most of the internet really loved it. And J.K. Rowling herself tweeted that it's, you know, Hermione is described as having frizzy hair and being very clever and dark eyes, but that her skin color is never described anywhere. And so it's not canon necessarily that Hermione is black, but it's also not canon that Hermione is right. white. And Rowling has signed off on yes, the door is open. Open about who Hermione might be and this is very cool. Yeah, very
1: cool. And maybe what we there's a lot to talk about in, in that just for a lot of reasons. So we'll save that maybe for a future show to really get if this was a regular news sh- show week, that would have been our top story. We would be yeah. talking about that. But for we'll, we'll a, put a pin in that that's not going anywhere anytime soon. Yeah and the other one um the other book I'm sorry the one I, the book I'm most looking forward to next year. Yeah tell me The Gene, Siddhartha Mukherjee's next book yes. coming out in May. I might have a PDF of it. Jeff that's, that's the, the one, the one. I'm gonna mm-hmm. email yeah. you and beg for okay, it. Okay, so that's coming um, out in May, I believe. May and or June.
0: I don't remember the publication date. This is maybe the most idiosyncratic thing I've oh, ever had. Oh, I'm been excited, excited for that. Terry oh. Tempest Williams' <laughs> next book is about the national parks. Oh really?
1: Wow, yes. okay.
0: I'm going to call you up and tell you national park facts like that episode of the West Oh, Wesleyan. this will be the
1: second most boring national parks pop culture thing since Ken Berg's <laughs> News of a series about the national parks.
0: No, it's going to be amazing. Oh, I'm sure it'll be great. She's, I'm
1: sure it'll be great.
0: She's so yeah, great yeah. on nature and Refuge is one of my favorite books and she's, I just can't, like I could tear up at the thought <laughs> of getting a book about the national parks by Derry Tempest Williams and it's happening. I'm so excited. I'm already reading fiction mm. for 2016. I have been for a little while and there's some Good stuff, but I think like currently the thing that I most want in my life is the Terry Tempest Williams book about the yeah. National I'm not parks. sure how to.
1: I'm I, I'm I'm trying. To, I'm reading a couple other things. I'm trying to get through before I look at the. It's long. It's 570 pages, and I don't love reading nonfiction on PDF. So I, I will have to see. Mm. Um,
0: so, It'll just be terrible if that falls into my Yeah, will, I mean, uh, if it fell off the I back do, of a digital
1: truck, uh, you know, you wouldn't you wouldn't look askance at it. And, you know, the other thing that's funny about publishing, we don't know what the big movie, the uh, sorry, the big books of the year, were, whereas with movies, they got to tell you ahead of time, like, you know, what's coming out in the summer and fall, yeah, but we're going right. to get surprises all the way through that something is coming Probably by
0: out. like March or April, we'll start to really have a sense of what. Are expected yeah. to be the big titles of September. Well, this year October. we got
1: bombs dropped on us. We got we got Ghost of a Watchman and Gray were announced with like within a couple of weeks of each other, and they released within a couple of weeks of each other. Like it, it was like it's six weeks before or something crazy mm-hmm. um, for those things. So it's always exciting about what books are coming out. Um, and uh, you know, it's our end of the. Year. Are we recording next week? I don't even know. I haven't looked at the schedule. Are we?
0: Uh, I just assumed. Yeah. Really, okay. I thought. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's fine. Not, I'm around. I don't here. know. I was, we'll have I was a gonna show. say,
1: but anyway. Thank you all so much for listening. I hope you all have a wonderful holiday season. Uh, even if we, we're planning on recording right now, but we probably won't get the episode out to you until after the the new year. So, um, from both of us, thank you so much for listening and and being around with us. And we enjoy the show and looking for another exciting book nerd year for sure.
0: Have a good one.